0: 2 Samuel chapter 16. Go ahead and join me there. In our study of chapter 15, last week we saw David make two requests. And both of them have to do with a man named Ahithophel. I'd ask you guys all to repeat that, Ahithophel, but I stumble on that sometimes too. You gotta love these Hebrew names. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted advisors. In chapter 16, verse 23, we read that his counsel was so wise and trustworthy that it was accepted as if he was a prophet of God. He's not listed as a prophet, but obviously you can understand that when a prophet would speak, they would trust that. And um, Ahithophel was treated in the same way. His counsel was so wise that it was as if God was speaking through him. The Bible never tells us, why Ahithophel did what we learned, but in chapter 15, he deserted David and started following Absalom, David's son, who was now trying to take over the throne and kill him. So why Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted advisors, why he would do that is somewhat unclear. We've made some speculations, however. He was the grandfather of Bathsheba, which meant that he was the grandfather-in-law of Uriah, and we all know what David did to Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah. And so some speculation would be that maybe Ahithophel was embittered towards David because of what he had done to his daughter, or to his granddaughter, and to his his, um, grandson in law. Again, that's just purely speculation, but it would seem to make sense. So David obviously is concerned because now one of his most trusted advisors is advising his son. And as you would imagine, that provides his son with all kinds of insider information and puts David now at risk. And so David last week made two requests. The first request we found in verse 31, which was that David prayed that that the Lord would make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness, when his son Absalom would ask. In other words, David asked the Lord to supernaturally make Ahithophel, who was known for giving wise counsel, a foolish man to give foolish or unwise counsel to Absalom, and that would take God's supernatural hand to be able to do that. The second request was found in verses 32 through 37, and that's where David asked his close friend and another advisor, Hushai, to return to Absalom and to serve as one of his advisors so that he could, quote, thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. In other words, Hushai was to become David's spy, to circumvent any good counsel that Ahithophel might give. And so we have these two requests by David. That the Lord would basically screw up the words of Ahithophel, and that Hushai would be there to thwart the words as well. We're going to see a fulfillment of both of those requests today. And it begins when Hushai actually returns to Jerusalem. So let's look at verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read those. Chapter 16, verses 15 through 19. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai, the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? He's referring to David there. Then Hushai said to Absalom, "No, for whom the Lord, His people, and all the men of Israel have chosen, this I will be, and I will, and with him I will remain. Besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of His Son, as I have served in your father's presence? So I will be in your presence." One of the commentaries that I use to check my own work, the author, his name is Robert Bergen, makes this comment about this. Section here he says, One of the most successful acts of deceit and subterfuge recorded in in Israelite history is found here. The greatness of Hushai's performance can only be appreciated as one understands that Hushai was a master of double entendre. Anybody know what that is? Double entendre refers to using a word or a phrase that is open to two possible different interpretations. You sort of imply the one, but you really mean the other. There's a double meaning to what you're saying, and it's a way of sort of concealing something. And Hushai here does it like a pro. I'm going to give you some examples. Notice that when he first appeared before Absalom, he greets him with, Long live the king, long live the king. Now, how do you suppose Absalom would interpret that? Absalom thinks he's the rightful king. And so Hushai comes in and says, Long live the king! Long live the king! Is it possible that Hushai isn't really referring to Absalom here, but referring to David? When Absalom is a little bit suspicious and questions Hushai's loyalty to David, Hushai responds with another phrase that Absalom would assume applies to him, but it could also apply to David. Notice what he says in verse 18. For whom the Lord, his people, and all the men of Israel have chosen... His I will be, and with him I will remain. Now, prior to this, obviously the Lord had chosen David. All of Israel had chosen David. The army, the people, etc. It's easy to think here that, at least with that first phrase, for whom the Lord has chosen. Who did the Lord choose? Did he choose Absalom or David? Absalom would have thought these words applied to him. But it's likely that, that Hushai was referring, at least with the phrase, whom the Lord has chosen. Refers to David. Even the last statement could be taken in more way than one. Should I not serve in his presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Absalom would have likely interpreted these words as Hushai's commitment to serve him as loyally as he did David. But who is he serving here? He basically says, should I not serve in the presence of the king's son? Well, he's going to serve in Absalom's presence, but who is he going to serve here ultimately? He's serving David. Hushai's words could also be understood simply as that. I will also be in your presence. That's true, he's going to be in his presence, but he implies by being in your presence I'm going to serve you, but no, I'll just be in your presence, but I'm still going to serve my king. And so Absalom here is, or I'm sorry, um, Hushai here appears to be a master of double entendre. That's what you would expect of a spy, right? To convince the one you're in the presence of that you're serving him, but you're ultimately serving Another entity. The fact that Absalom welcomes Hushai into his service and asks for and accepts his counsel later indicates that he bought Hushai's act, hook, line, and sinker. I want to mention something about this here. I want to talk about, a, uh, basically, share a word about deception in the Bible. I had a conversation not too long ago with a friend of mine about deception. And is it ever appropriate for Christians or believers to use deception? And the example he brought up, somebody had challenged him and mentioned Hagar from the Old Testament. And this individual, a Christian individual, had shared with this friend of mine that Hagar was wrong in lying about the spies. That she, What's that? Rahab. Oh, I'm sorry, Rahab. Rahab. Rahab had lied about the spies, and so she was wrong in doing so. That she should have, when they came and... Checked with her, she said, yeah, oh, they're right there up on the roof, I put them there. Because it's always wrong to lie. And the challenge I have with that is that Rahab is referred to by James as a hero. There are plenty of exceptions in the scriptures that seem to indicate that deception is not necessarily a sin. The Bible clearly points out that lying and deception for personal benefit certainly would be a sin. Think about this. It's a normal part of war and battles, and we see that throughout the Old Testament, don't we? As David fights, there was deception involved. You're trying to deceive your enemy. Is that sin? God dealt with the midwives, it says, and gave their, them families when they refused to kill the Hebrew infants and deceived Pharaoh. about it. Remember, Pharaoh said to kill all of the children? And the midwives hid that. And God gave him families. The text says He dealt with them well because of what they had done. Was it wrong for them to deceive the Pharaoh? Again, James wrote that Rahab was justified. it Says justified, even though she lied to protect the slave or the, the spies. What about when David pretended to be a crazed lunatic in front of Achish so that he wouldn't kill him? Remember that story? Was David sinning there by pretending to be crazy to protect his life there? We're going to see in our passage later today that there's a woman who misleads some of Absalom's men when she hides the sons of the priest Zadok in a well to protect his sons. Is that sin? What about Paul when his disciples hid him and then snuck him down the wall out of the city to save his life? Was that wrong? My point in bringing this up is what we find here is that Hushai is actually doing a righteous thing. By deceiving Absalom, he's, being, he's we're going to see he's going to be used as an agent of the Lord. Um, the only reason I bring this up is because people wonder about it sometimes. Is it ever appropriate to use deception? And there clearly are in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying we should all run out and be deceptive. We're called to be truthful and honest. But, you know, if I were living in Germany during World War II and the Nazis came to my house and I happened to be hiding Jews what would the righteous thing be to do? To hand him over? Or to deceive the Nazis? I would argue, based on all the evidence, the latter is the more righteous thing to do. And that's what we see Hushai doing here. He comes in very shrewdly. He deceives Absalom. He gets on his good side. But we're going to see that he's ultimately a tool that's going to be used, that or who's going to be used, by God to accomplish God's purpose in answering David's prayers. The next thing we look at here is that Absalom is going to ask Ahithophel for his counsel, and Ahithophel is going to do exactly what David had hoped he would do, which is to give Absalom foolish advice. So soon after arriving in Jerusalem, Absalom asks Ahithophel for advice on how to proceed in taking over the throne of David. Ahithophel's advice comes in two parts, and the first part is found in verses 20 through 23. Let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 16, starting in verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear what you have made yourself, or that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God, so was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. So what's the point here? We see the answer to David's first prayer right here. David's first prayer, remember, was that the Lord would make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. When we think of foolishness, we generally think of stupidity. Or having a lack of sense. And those are certainly true, right? If I say you're a fool, it means you're crazy, or stupid, right? But in the Old Testament, foolishness is generally tied to a lack of moral character. Tied to a lack of moral character. It's thinking or acting in opposition to the Lord, His commands, or His will. That's really what it means to be a fool in the Scriptures. When it says that... Um, the fool in his heart says there is no God. It doesn't mean that he's stupid. It means that he acts as if there is no God. Acts contrary to him. so, in the Old Testament, this foolishness played out in many different ways. We think about what Samuel said to King Saul. First Samuel chapter 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. And he qualifies it by saying, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. That's what made Saul a fool. He wasn't stupid. He was a brilliant military man. But he acted contrary to God's law, the way that God had commanded him. The Lord said about Israel and Jeremiah, for for my people are foolish. They don't know me. Now he does say here they are stupid children and have no understanding. But listen to this. They are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they don't know what to do. And again, the emphasis there is not just on not being intelligent. It's rather um, they know what to do and they just don't do it. They ignore the Word of God. And so that's really at the heart and essence of being a fool. And so how does that relate to what Ahithophel does here? That's exactly what we see. Ahithophel's advice to Absalom involves a wicked and immoral act. Now, from a from the standpoint of what Absalom was asking asking for from Ahithophel was, what do I have to do to secure the throne from David? And the answer that Ahithophel gives him was a, I'll say, brilliant move in that culture and that time because taking over a king's concubines, his wives, was evidence that you had taken over the throne. And so from that standpoint, it was a very worldly, intelligent move. If you want to secure the throne, you have to prove to all of Israel, you have to prove to all of the soldiers, the military men, that you now own that throne, and the way you do that is you take over David's concubines. So set up a tent, go out there, and sleep with his concubines. In doing that, you'll secure your place. So from that standpoint, it was a brilliant military move, if you will, but from a scriptural standpoint, it was an immoral, foolish act puts Absalom on the opposite side of God, does it not? Now you notice in verse 23, it says that normally Ahithophel's words were treated as if he was speaking on behalf of God. and In this particular case, he had defected from David. He was now serving Absalom. David was his enemy. We have this son, Absalom, that's now listening to the counsel of David's wise man, You would think that almost immediately he would accept this counsel, but he's going to ask Hushai for some advice as well. Maybe it was that he had recognized, well, that's a little bit extreme, but now he certainly did it. I'm sorry, Absalom went ahead and followed through on this advice, ultimately. But what we see here is that the Lord did exactly what David had asked. He made Ahithophel a fool to give immoral advice. What happens next? Well, this is where we see the answer to David's second request, and it specifically relates to Hushai as he thwarts Ahithophel's advice. Because Ahithophel, remember, this comes in two parts. The first part of it was take over the concubines. The second part is Ahithophel came up with a plan for David to, um, or for Absalom to attack David. So if you look at verses, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see this second half of Ahithophel's plan. I'm sorry, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may rise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are um, with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone, and I will bring him back to all the people to you to return to everyone depends on the man you seek that all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And so Absalom was told by Ahithophel, let me take 12,000 men, I'll develop a strike force to attack David. David's army was significantly smaller, probably about 600 mighty men. And so Ahithophel says, put together this massive strike force of 12,000 people. His plan is to simply go in and completely overwhelm David and his army. In addition to that, he said that they would attack at night. Battles typically were fought during the daylight in the ancient Near East. Here, he wanted to attack David when he was weary and exhausted, it says. He wanted to terrify him so that David's men would have ultimately abandon him. And so he puts this elaborate plan together. He then says, when that happens, Ahithophel said, I'll go in myself and I will kill David and I'll bring him back so that David's men will all see that. And what do we expect? Absalom says, hmm, sounds good to me. Let's go in. Overwhelming force. We'll do it. I'll let you take care of this for me. But also it says that even the elders of Israel were okay with this. They were already on Absalom's side. If you look at verse 5 through 10, Absalom, for some reason, we're not really sure why, because it says he thought the council was good. But somehow the Lord moved him to ask Hushai for a second opinion. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. And it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even, and and, I'm sorry, and even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those those who are with him are valiant men. And so Hushai immediately says, no, 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 king. That's As much as you can trust Ahithophel on everything else, this counsel is not, not good. And he can speak from experience here, because he knew David. He was one of David's advisors. He calls Ahithophel's advice not good. He reminds Absalom that David and his men are fierce. That means a, a more literal translation is bitter in their souls. This is a guy you don't want to cross paths with on the military field, the battlefield. They're bitter in their soul, like a bear who is robbed of her cubs. What won't a mama bear do to protect her cubs? David had been robbed of his throne and so he would be motivated to fight to reclaim it just like a mama bear would to protect her cubs. He also reminded Absalom that David was an expert soldier and that he wouldn't stay out in the open field with his army just waiting to be attacked, that instead he would probably hide in the caves around the area so that he'd be prepared to respond to any attack. He warns Absalom that if he follows Ahithophel's advice that David and his men would prevail over Absalom's army and even Absalom's most valiant men would run away like little girls. That's the reality. In other words, even though David's army was significantly smaller than the 12,000 men that Ahithophel suggested, David's skill and drive would be no match for Absalom's men. And then what Hushai does is he provides Absalom with a much different plan. We find that in verses 11 through 14. But I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba and to the sand that is by the sea in abundance and that you personally go into battle. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found and we will fall on him and um, as dew falls on the ground. And of him all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and we will drag it into the valley." until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good council of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. And so what we find here is that what Hushai recommends is, 12,000 men isn't enough. Take the whole entire army. Well, that sounds much better to Absalom, because, hey, if 12,000 men are good, why not a whole entire army? Now we don't know how many of that would be. Some of the later research that I've done in the book here, there may have been as many as 800,000 fighting men, men of military age in Israel. But Hushai says, "Take your whole entire army to go attack David." Now we're going to find out as we get to that section where the where it happens. Um, Absalom ultimately is killed. David's army is successful at defeating them. We find here in the text that God had actually ordained it. Look at verse 14 again. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. And so we find here the Lord's answer to David's prayers. Go to verse 15 with me. Hushai does exactly what David had asked him to do. Then Hushai said to Zadok, who's the priest, and Abathar the priest, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now Jonathan and Ahizmaz, were staying at Enrogel. and a maid servant would go and tell them and they would go and tell the king or go tell king david for they could not have been seen entering the city but a lad did see them and told absalom and the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a man in barum and they are and uh, had a well in his courtyard and went down into it and the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, "Where has Asimaz and Jonathan? or where are Azmaz and Jonathan?" And the woman said, "They have crossed the brook of water." And when they searched, they could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. It came about after they had departed, and they came out of the well and went and told King David. And they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him rose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. And so what we basically find here is this, in many respects, a conclusion to what David had asked of the Lord. He had asked the Lord that he would reach out and make Ahithophel, his counsel, foolishness. He asked the Lord to ultimately do that. He sent Hushai along. The Lord used Hushai to do just that. As I think about this passage this morning, and as I kind of started working through it, I had to ask myself, what in the world do I do with this? You know, I mean, that's, that's the crux of the story there. It's really, there's not much more to it aside from just a few verses left at the end here that we'll read near the end. But I really, I think I probably struggled for a good week. Um, really wondering, how does this apply to us? What do we do with this? I mean, do we take, a, take walking papers from this? We should go out and be deceptive? No, obviously not. We see two episodes of that in this passage, both of which God uses. He uses the woman here with the well, and he uses Hushai, He's doing it to accomplish his purposes. The answer obviously has to do with how God responds to David here in David's requests. I want you to turn back to chapter eleven, chapter eleven, verses ten and eleven. In chapter eleven, verses ten through eleven, we read this. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, "Have you not gone down? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's right." Um, David said to Uriah, "Have you not gone down from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house?" Uriah said to David, "The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in a temporary shelter, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? But you, but your life." In the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. What we found there is a story of, of David's response to Uriah. right? And so David actually kind of deceives Uriah. He ends up killing Uriah. And so he has these two sins, one of them Bathsheba, one of them Uriah. And what we ultimately find that leads to is this succession of further sin on David's part. right? And then, when you ultimately get to the end of that story... We find in verse 10 of chapter 12, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household, and I will take even your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. What we find is that it starts with David's sin with Bathsheba into Uriah, deceiving Uriah, ultimately leading to Uriah's death, and the Lord's response at the end of all that, when David finally confesses his sin, the Lord says, This is what's going to happen. What we see in our passage today is a direct fulfillment of what the Lord said here. Notice he says that the sword shall never depart from your house. He's now being chased by Absalom. He basically says, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. He then goes on to say, I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, which is exactly what Absalom did. And then he will lie with your wives. What? In broad daylight. Where did Absalom build his tent to do this? Right up on the top of the portico where all Israel could see him doing it. So, everything we see right now with David as he's battling Absalom, as he comes up with this spy scheme with Hushai, David is simply paying the price, the consequence, for his own sin. It's his own fault. So as I think through that I had this friend of mine who had reached out to me that's going through a really difficult time who's right now paying the consequence for his own sin. It's something he was warned about I warned him others had warned him he still proceeded in his sin and here he is quite a few years later he's now paying the price the consequence for those sins. And when he reached out to me, I was in the midst of studying this passage. And so I thought, wow, it's just like David. This individual has, has confessed his sin, has repented. He's very open to the fact that I'm now living in, or sleeping in the bed that I made. He fully understands that. And so I found, I found myself looking at him going, you're just like David. And so what's the encouragement that I might be able to offer What was the encouragement maybe for David here? I'm going to read you what I wrote to him. Okay? Because I think it might help us with this. As I struggled to figure out what kind of practical application this has for our lives, I was reminded that the events that take place in this passage were first and foremost consequences of David's own sin. Even though David had repented of his sin, had been forgiven by the Lord, the Lord told him that there would be consequences for his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. He would raise up evil against him from his own household and would give his wives to his companion and would lie with them in front of Israel. Basically, in this passage, we see David facing those consequences, literally. What's remarkable, however, is that even at such a time, the Lord did not abandon or forget about David. He wasn't ignorant of David's pain or his suffering. He wasn't oblivious to it. And he didn't tune David out. Rather, he heard David's prayer, acted on his behalf, and ultimately thwarted the wickedness plotted against him. I think about that as a parent sometimes. You know, when your children do things that they're not supposed to do, maybe even something that might be quite egregious. Do you tune them out? Do you turn your back? Do you shut them down? The Lord didn't do that with David. Even as horrific as David's sins were. And so here David is in the middle of of paying the price for his own sin and the Lord didn't turn his back on him. Let me continue. What struck me further is that this is a pattern in the scriptures. The book of Judges catalogs Israel's constant cycle of rebellion facing the consequences of that rebellion, their repentance, and ultimately God's deliverance. But yet God never forgot about it. How many cycles do we see in the book of Judges? If I remember right, do you remember something like, I don't remember the exact total, 17, I don't remember. But it's just over and over and over. And yet God never forgets about Israel. He always sees them in their anguish. They they would face their enemies because God would raise up their enemies to chastise them. And then they would wail and cry and scream out to Him. He didn't just go, eh, suck it up. Just deal with it. Instead, He sends a, judge, somebody to rescue them. Even when we're facing the consequences of our own sin, he never shuts us out. He never becomes deaf to our cries. This was true of Israel even in their captivity when they were stuck in Babylon. He sent them away into the hands of their enemies. He never stopped listening to their cries in Babylon. Even in their captivity facing the consequences of their sin, he never forgot about them. In fact, he ultimately delivered them back to their land, sent them back to Israel. Even today, God's people Israel are facing the consequences of rejecting their Lord and Savior, are they not? But has God forgotten about them? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, that he hasn't forgotten about them, that he's still going to fulfill his promises, he's still going to save them. One of the problems I have with replacement theology, which is the idea that the church has somehow replaced Israel, is it totally misses a mark on how God works. God didn't say, Israel, sorry, you blew it. I'm going to just give it all to the church now. No. God rescues and saves us as the church. He saves us as Gentiles because he's going to graft us in, but he still has his promises to Israel. He hasn't forgotten about Israel. And there will be a time where he'll be attentive to their prayers, will hear those prayers, and will ultimately deliver them, Paul says. So all of this reminds me that even though we face consequences of sin whether that's the general effects of sin in the sin-cursed world or whether they're consequences of our own past sins, sins of our own making, therefore consequences of our own making, God has not and will not abandon us. He's not deaf to our pleas. He's not unmoved by our suffering. He doesn't ignore our pain. Even when it's pain that we've created or a situation we've put ourselves in. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm chapter 55. This was likely written at this time. That's at least what the prescript seems to suggest. David said, As for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me, evening and morning and at noon. I will complain and murmur and... And he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old. We actually see that displayed in these final verses. I'm just going to read these verses 24 through 29. (laughs) Here. Twenty-four through twenty-nine. Then David said to behind him, and Absalom crossed the Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom sent Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra, the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nashah, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nasha and Reba, and the sons of Ammon, Macher, the son of Amiel from Lower Bar, and Marzillai, the Gilead from Regimen, or from Magalum, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentil, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said that people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, why is that important? Here David is on the run. He had been run out of Israel, chased by his son, fear for his life, He now gets word from Hushai of what Absalom's plans are, and so he's now got to go out even further, crosses over the the forge, it says. And yet the Lord somehow miraculously delivers these massive amount of supplies to David. Out of the blue. Takes care of his needs. It's clear from this that the Lord has not forgotten about David. And so I think as I look at this passage today, I think the takeaway at least one of the takeaways, you may have your own. But one of the takeaways for me is that when we think about the Lord's forgiveness, it it actually extends, I think, sometimes much further than we realize. You know, we still do stupid things. We still sin. Sometimes we pay the consequences for that sin. Sometimes the consequences are worse than others. Some people really, really screw up bad. The question is, how bad can we screw up to get us to the point where God finally says, I'm not going to listen anymore. Scripturally, it appears that with his people, that even when we screw up, even when we sin, even when we get chastised or we pay the consequences for that sin, when we cry out to him in the pain and the anguish caused by our own sin, he doesn't shut the door. He doesn't just cut us off. He still hears, he still listens, he still acts on our behalf. I think when Paul says in Romans 8 um, that there's nothing that can take us out of his hand, that's exactly what he's hinting at. So I think there's a certain amount of comfort there for us. But the other thing that I have to do with that is I think that Paul also says in Romans, and believe it's chapter 2, that that kind of kindness from the Lord drives repentance. It leads us to repentance. And so when we think about this, when we, you know, we'd love to strive for perfection. We would love to just never sin, right? But we know that we still do. When we do that, we're told we can go to Him. He'll forgive us. He'll cleanse us off. Sometimes when we really screw up, and maybe the consequence is bigger than than we had hoped for, And we cry out to Him. Can we expect that He hears our prayers, even in the midst of our own pain when we created it ourselves? Yeah, because the Scriptures teach us that. That He doesn't shut us out. That is an amazing, gracious, kind, forgiving God. Now, from there, we have two choices. One is, eh, God's rescued me and do what Israel did and Judges. Go back to sin. or respond the way that Paul says that that kindness should lead us to repentance that should soften our hearts and say man look at how he continues to forgive me even when I screw up even when I have consequences he still hears me in those consequences that ought to drive us to love him all that much more and to strive all that much more for the holiness that he wants for us should it not? I love the story because, like I said, as much as I struggle with what do you do with this story, it's a pretty neat principle that comes out of it, which is this idea, again, that even when we sin and pay the consequences for those sin in an earthly sense, God doesn't just turn his back on us. And he didn't on David here. Maybe that's one reason why David was a man after God's own heart. I'm glad that what we see in David is this example of this man who struggles. Because it teaches us an awful lot about ourselves, but it also teaches us something about how God responds to us. might have been a little more difficult for us if David had been a perfect man, and then we're looking to that as an example, because that would be an example we're not going to live up to. Um, But we see in David here a great example of God's grace and mercy, even when he's sleeping in the bed that he created himself.